Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nice, and this is the Giro d'Italia Stage 20 and Vuelta Espana Stage 5. Can't believe we're already at Stage 5. Recap, brought to you by our partner, LaCole. You can see their man, Pale Bilbao, right up there on GC, barring McLaren, obviously, wearing the LaCole kit. Got a few riders as well uh, for Bahrain with setting up for a rest day interview in the uh, the Vuelta Espana, maybe the first or second rest day. But if you want to check out LeCole Kit, you can check them out at www.lecole.cc, L-E-C-O-L.cc. The link is in the show notes in the YouTube video description. And I think ending after the stage tomorrow, use the code LRGIRO15 for 15% off at checkout. That's all caps LRGIRO. 15. But this was the pivotal stage at the Giro where we thought the GC was going to be decided and it was a reminder of where the GC positions were. It was Kelderman in the Maglia Rosa, 12 seconds ahead of teammate Jai Hindley on Sunweb and 15 seconds ahead of Teo Gagenhart. So Gagenhart three seconds behind Hindley, a reminder as well. In terms of ranking them in strength of time trialing, Kelderman's strongest, Gagenhart's second strongest, but probably I wouldn't say too far behind Kelderman, given the condition they're both in at the end of the, the Giro right now. I wouldn't be necessarily expecting Kelderman to beat Gagenhart in a TT tomorrow. And Hinley third best. Uh, seems on the limited data we've got on his TT ability, he's behind Gagenhart in the TTs. So that was the GC situation and their abilities before tomorrow's pivotal Milano time trial, which is quite long, I think, like over 20 kilometres, if my memory serves me correctly. But the stage today into Sestriere from Alba to Sestriere, they do laps, they do hill repeats of Sestriere. 190 k's is a much easier stage than what they were supposed to do, but still quite a hard stage. Pretty much flat for 90 k's, then they begin the long first ascension of Sestria, 32 k's at 4%, but really the last 7 k's is proper climbing at like 7%, and then no more flat, descent, Sestria again, 7 k's at 7.2%, descent, Sestria again, 7 k's at 7.2%. It might be actually a little bit longer than that, the climbing, uh, but that's the main climbing bit. And there was bonus seconds with 9 or 8 k's to go at the base of the last rep of Cestriere and obviously bonus seconds at the line as well. So the question was, would Kelderman be able to hang on? We knew Ineos were going to attack and try and set something up for Gagan Hart to gain time on Kelderman. And what would Sunweb do with Hindley and Kelderman? Um, would they do something different to Stelio? But still a large break went up the road, Benji, with actually some satellite riders used to effect for the first time. We'll get to it later in I can't remember how many years. Yes, we had satellite riders there for the cutting quick step. Ballerini, Honore and Peter City were all available in that breakaway. The break did get a solid gap from the start. Other riders in there were the likes of Ainer Augusto Rubio, the man that was sitting in the wheel of Thomas de Gend in the stage that Ghana won. That's what he's most known for right now, but he was great in his U23 years, getting second in some Italian U23 race. Not sure if it was a Giro U23 or uh, the Val d'Aosta one, but either way has shown 
proper talent as a youngster and is now properly breaking through in the breakaways a bit. Matthew Holmes trying again. We've got Tunnel Kangat for one of the first times in this Giro that he tries to go up ahead. And also Arno Demar. We, um, I don't know. I didn't feel like he was going to be up there, but it's fun. I enjoy it. It's second last day of the season, so might as well try something fun, I guess. Bouchard with Vendrame. Trotnik once again, stage winner. Filippo Fiorelli, which is that sprinter in the first stages of the Giro that got seventh and ninth or something into sprint stages. So also not directly the name you would put here as the rider you would expect to be in a mountain stage breakaway. Chimolai the same. And I think Rubio had another teammate, Vilela. Two teammates from NTT, Sobrero and Gibraltar, and Julien Bernard as the final rider together with Viviania Malecki. So a large breakaway. And that obviously means that in the peloton, a few teams will have to work together because you've got 21 people in this front group, or 19 actually, 19 people in this front group that will be pacing, relaying, perhaps a good five riders of that will be sitting at the back because they have teammates pacing. But all in all, a lot of riders are pacing in this breakaway. And in the peloton at the start, that was not the case. You've got Sunweb, who obviously is not going to spend their energy on the flat part. Going to try and save as much as possible, like we said they should yesterday. And they should play the stage defensively for Kelderman at the start, at least. And that is exactly how it really turned out. But suddenly another team came to the fore. Ineos wasn't really bothered by it yet, wasn't really looking to do anything yet. But Astana started pacing a good 60 kilometers into the, into the stage, a good 50 kilometers before the actual first climb. And, well, they started pacing quite hard, but the difference with the breakaway started going up and up still because you've got a domestique by Astana versus 19 people in the breakaway. Sometimes two domestiques from Astana, but they didn't really relay with three riders or anything for the first spot, at least. And in general, this whole situation went up to seven minutes, seven minutes and a half. And then something odd happened in the peloton where they went through the feeding zone just before the first Sistriere climb, which is that 32 kilometer one on paper. And through that feeding zone, Astana kept on pacing and Ineos was behind suddenly because there was a gap opening up in the peloton. And Astana just kept on pacing and suddenly the gap was like 200 meters. And then Ineos had to start early to try and close that down because Kelderman was at the front together with a teammate. Fulseng wasn't even in that front group. He was in that second group. So why Astana kept pacing through that feeding zone still makes me wonder a lot because they're basically riding away with Kelderman. Perhaps didn't notice, but it was a solid minute and a half before the others came back. So I don't know, a bit of an odd situation, but led to nothing except for some chaos perhaps in the minds of the Ineos riders. Oh no, we have to close the gap already and we're not even at the climb. But outside of that, it seems like the breakaway was storming to the first climb. We had in our mind that on the climbs, this breakaway would on paper be caught even if the gap was seven minutes at this point because we were expecting chaos by Ineos. We were ex expecting Gana to start, Castroviejo to start, Pucho on the first climb. And obviously we were expecting Rohan Dennis like on the Stelvio stage. And yeah, I'll throw it to you for that. Yeah, so the first recension of Sestriere, Ineos comes to the front, they've got Puccio, etc., and they don't really do it that hard. Um, Sunweb pretty much had their whole team there, and this was... Uh, it, it goes into what we've spoken about, I think, before, of instead of just pacing like pretty hard for a long time, 
Ineos' strategy was clearly like keep a decent pace at the front with Puccio while you can, keep, but keep Dennis and Ganna in reserve. So it's all together. They get sent to the second ascension of Sestriere or the base, and then they absolutely punch it. First with Ganna, I'm not even sure. I remember Swift taking a turn, Ganna, and then it's still a pretty large group, by the way. Ganna takes a long turn. VAM on the first. Um, Ascension of Sestria, like 1250, I think. And then Rowan Dennis absolutely shreds it uh, on the second Ascension. We knew this was coming, and it's pretty much just Jai Hindley on his wheel. Kelderman's dropping immediately. Fulsang had Astana working today for a fair bit on the flat, and he dropped maybe even when Gunner was pulling. Nibali was well gone. Almeida was distanced but kept fighting really hard, and... Yeah, Kelderman just kept going backwards and he looked like he was really struggling. And it's 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 weird how he loses like the he loses the minute really, really quickly, Kelderman, and he did the same on Stelvio, but then he he keeps it at about that minute. He doesn't keep losing time in a linear fashion. And um, so yeah, I don't know what what happened with him, but I guess the obvious answer is he's empty at this point of the Giro. And I would even, if they he was on the same time as Gay and Hart going into the tomorrow's TT, I'd still be going with Gay and Hart, to be honest. Um, but then it was a battle, like on Stelvio, between Rowan Dennis absolutely rampaging, Teo Gay and Hart sitting behind him, and Jai Hindley. And it was pretty obvious. We said it yesterday on the preview pod, Benji. I mean, remi- could you remind everyone what we said on the preview podcast? Because I don't want to seem like um, I'm sh- being uh, being us up too much. So a summary was that we expected Ineos to start punching it on the first climb quite a bit already. And on the second climb, Kelderman would drop. Then Hindley would have to attack on the third climb, but Tao Gegenhard would win the stage. That's exactly what we said. And, uh, well... It somewhat turned towards that, I must say, because on that second ascension. But, but when, when should Hindley have attacked? That's the real, the real question. When should he have attacked? Because he did attack uh, later in the stage. When do you think would have been a good moment to attack? And and do you think it's as simple as circling a particular moment on the on the roadmap, or maybe having a zone where he should attack? or waiting for a tell from Gainhard or Dennis? Well, I think we both knew at a certain point that there was a moment where we felt an attack was better, and that was at the start of the last ascension of Sestriere. They had a bit of an intermediate sprint for 3, 2, and 1 seconds in that three-man group, because, well, who was left? We had Dennis, we had Gegenhardt, and we had Hindley at that point. The breakaway riders were caught, and those three riders were sprinting for those intermediate sprint seconds. And... It looked like Ineos was kind of surprised there. We felt like you have Hindley that passes the other two on the right. And the reaction of Hard was a bit slow. And it wasn't like he had a full force reaction. And at that point, I said, he's looking weak. Even though it might not have been that he was weak. Maybe it's a surprise that he wasn't set biased the as that the intermediate sprint is there. Unlike the opposite side that Sunweb did at the Stelvio stage and forgot that there was an intermediate sprint with seconds. But I had the feeling that there was something. And if there is something, then I feel like Hindley should have attacked earlier. And at that point, we had Kelderman behind. 1 minute 30 at that point. And he wasn't a group to get away 
the Koenig Riders and Almeida, because the Koenig Riders from the breakaway dropped back to help out Almeida, and Almeida was in the group with Bilbao and with Kelderman trying to get that gap down. They succeeded in that for a bit. They succeeded in that for quite a bit. They dropped it towards a good one minute and 10 seconds. And I think we disagree about the De Koenig strategy, but this is how I see it. They have Almeida in GC before the stage on two minutes and 16 seconds at 51 seconds behind Bilbao. That is a minute 15, if I recall, or something like that behind the podium. Two minutes 15, actually. So... He's not really close to the podium, but he has the ability to get into the fourth position of GC if he can get away from Bilbao and if he can get away from Kelderman and Kelderman collapses, he can even have an opportunity for a podium. Almeida does not need to catch them on GC today because he's a better time trialist hands down. And for me, what he did in that group, he had the team pace for him in that group, also pacing Kelderman to the front a bit more. And then he attacked last minute because Seri was riding a good 100 meters before the group as Seri came from the breakaway as well. So he had a satellite rider up there and attacked to Seri who paced him forward while Kelderman and Bilbao were dropped at that moment. And I think that was the ideal moment for Almeida to do that because after the stage, I'm going to spoil this part. We won't spoil the rest of the, the GC battle yet, but. Almeida is closer to Bilbao and has a foundation to be fourth in GC after tomorrow's time trial. So I believe what Almeida did was better than how it looks. And therefore, I think that he's going to be fourth instead of fifth because of this action. What's your thoughts on the decoding strategy? Oh, well, I'll cover them with my comments on Hindley, I think, in a little bit re when to attack but just to round off what what happened in the stage you've got obviously the trio of Dennis Gainhart and Hinley Clear you've got after this intermediate sprint I think Benji mentioned the time gap was about a minute and 20 it seemed like on the descent the last descent of the Sestria Kelderman group put about 10 to 15 seconds back into them but Dennis on the flat and like false flat uphill is just so strong and he just makes it impossible for any group. Like, he just, that's his bread and butter. Like, he's not actually that big a dude. And he did an unbelievable job again today for Teo Gagenhart. And he kept extending that gap. It went to like a minute 40, which meant that Kelderman was pretty much out of GC contention, unless TGH had a big, big problem in the TT tomorrow. And never say never, I guess. They get onto the final climb, and it's still Dennis pacing. Dennis pretty much paces the final climb, and this is where we were wrong. I don't think I thought, or other I thought, Dennis was going to pace the entire climb, and he almost does until eventually um, there was that intermediate sprint where Hindley attacked, got a gap, didn't follow through with it, and then he there was a series of attacks where he's moved up now in front of Gainhart, and he's following Dennis' wheel, and I, I'm not really sure the rationale for that. He was sitting there on the climb, and then maybe with four Ks to go, four, yeah, about there, he attacked from the front with, well, not from the front, in front of Gagan Hart. And Dennis had been setting a false pace, I think, for quite a while. And what a false pace is. Dennis, I think, was close to blowing up, probably on the limit. He's got, they realize, okay, we've got Kelderman nearly two minutes back. So we don't need, Dennis was like, I'm the biggest asset to Gagan Hart, having this numerical advantage. I can 
bring back any attacks from Hindley if I need to. I can set an, a moderate pace so TGH doesn't have to just set a pace maybe and then be um, vulnerable to Hindley attacks. So Dennis is the biggest asset for Ineos. So he sets a false pace where they're not really extending the gap and it's not coming down too quickly until James Knox was pacing to DQS. And but then Kelderman got dropped, so it went back out again. And that way he was Dennis was able to stay there for ages. Hinley attacks, Gagenhart marks it pretty easily. That being said, um, Hinley's not snapping at like a thousand watts, so he needs some element of surprise. So being in front of Gagenhart and it not being off a really high pace or a slow pace either means he's not going to get any separation. Gagenhart's right onto his wheel. And then Hinley kind of kept pacing Benji. Like, I wouldn't – everyone, I want, I want you to go into your mind vault, go into your little special mind vault and cast your eyes, your mind back to when Contador was in a tete-a-tete on a climb, mano in mano with, with someone for GC. <laughs> he rides two pace. It's like five kilometres an hour. I'm about to fall over if I don't unclip or full gas attacking. That's how I think of classic Contador on a climb. Uh, when he's properly going for first position on GC. Uh, we all know his record on GC, never really podiuming, just just winning. And I think Hinley would and, – and the reason I, I, I have a, the biggest issue with it is because I, I do hear the Dutch fans. I do hear you when you say, well, if you're going to ride like this, why not just go back and pace for Kelderman? Because – I think attacking and then stopping is a great way to let Kelderman ride a steady pace back to Gagenhart and Hindley when Dennis isn't there. And when he's just him and Gagenhart, I didn't understand why he's pacing from, say, 4Ks onwards um, at all. I thought he should just literally sit up and look at Gagenhart and say, what are you going to do? And then, because the gap to Kelderman wasn't, wasn't that much. And then maybe they stall. He gets another 10 seconds back to them. Dennis comes back. Maybe Dennis is a little bit tired. Then Hindley attacks again. Attack again. So you're doing you're doing this dual strategy, whereas what he would do is he'd pace, not very hard, but still probably extending that gap to Kelderman. Dennis came back eventually, like Richie Port style, back from the dead. Dennis comes back, <laughs> and Hindley didn't let his wheel go. And Hindley's snapping onto Dennis' wheel. I'm like... You know he's not on fourth on GC. Like, you can just, you don't have to follow him. Like, just look at Gainhart and make him follow it and make him do everything and make sure you sit behind him out of sight. And once that happened, it was pretty much all she wrote because you, you cannot gain that much time on GC on another rider on a 7% climb in the last two kilometers, three kilometers. It's not possible. Unless they completely capitulate, which Gainhart certainly was not. Even Almeida as well, that's why I was saying I would get to it now. You cannot gain that much time. That's why you have to attack really, really early. That's why Nari Quintana, the, the Team Sky train strategies work so well against Quintana. Like To gain real time on Froome, he'd have to attack so far out, or Froome would have to be having a very bad day. And the most you can gain, even if you do get good separation, if you attack at 2Ks to go, is like maybe 15 seconds, 10 seconds, could be more, but 7%, not that steep. So that was the problem with Hindley. They ride it in. Eventually he attacks again, I think, or maybe gain. Yeah, he attacks again. Dennis finally drops maybe in the last kilometer or 800 meters. Hindley leads out Teo Gagenhart for the sprint and predictably Gagenhart 
comes around and beats him in the sprint. And um, just as just as we drew it up, pretty much, apart from Dennis just being the MVP once again, just unbelievable from him. Um, but yeah, it's they go in now at the same time exactly on GC Hindley and Gainhart. Um, Hindley now in the Malia Rosa by a few milliseconds, and Kelderman I think is. Ooh, quite a way back on GC now, a minute and 32 behind the both of them. But anything else I've missed out of that sort of the tactics there, Benji? I think that the only thing that I want to add to that is that I think the spring broke for Hindley and Kelderman. You say that Hindley was pacing a bit too much in that group. I totally agree. And if he didn't pace as much and played more acceleration-like, like sit up, attack, sit up, attack, instead of helping to pace a bit and then attack when they were with two, you would have Dennis earlier in the group, but Dennis was also losing time to the group with Almeida and Kelderman until Almeida attacked from Kelderman. I think the moment the spring broke for Kelderman to have an opportunity of remotely getting any closer was the moment Almeida dropped his ass on the last ascension. Because from that point onwards, the gap went up again. And you could say that it's because Hindley was also pacing in that group, but I don't think the pace was extreme. Definitely considering... It was slower than what Dennis was ramping up normally. So I believe that the actual moment where the spring broke for Kelderman, having the ability to get close enough to have a chance in the ITT was broken more by Almeida than it was from Hindley not sitting up in that front group. But I totally agree that it could have helped and it could have led to a different outcome. But I still think that all in all, Almeida is who broke Kelderman on the last ascension. And... That's what I've got in my mind right now. And the Koenig strategy influenced this so much throughout the stage. And they were riding their own race. They were riding their own race to have Almeida get closer to the people ahead of him in GC. They didn't care about Kelderman sitting in their wheel. They didn't care about Bilbao sitting in their wheel. Perhaps they should have let Kelderman do a bit more on the second ascension. And therefore have a bit more for the last ascension in their team. But in the end... Looking in hindsight as well, their strategy worked because, as I said, I think Bilbao is going to get overtaken by Almeida tomorrow in the time trial, and there's not much he can do about it unless he has a better time trial than he had in the last two time trials. For the general classification, if people don't know how it is decided if two people have the same time, well, they look at the time trials that happened in the Giro itself, and... In those time trials, we had, I think, Hindley with 56 seconds in a time, 56 hundredths of a second in a time trial advantage, and 52 hundredths of a second in the other time trial advantage. So that's more than a second advantage. And because of that, he has more hundredths of a second compared to Gagan Hart, and therefore he is higher in the GC. But what I question there is, if, for example, someone gets across the line in a time trial and they have 99 hundredths of a second, that is counted towards zero seconds in GC. And if you do that another time, and therefore, for example, 98 hundredths of a second in the next time trial, you've got a total of one second and 97 hundredths of a second. That is difference that you're losing. And imagine losing a Grand Tour by a second then. Yeah, well, I guess Gainhart posted up, I think, for one of his stage wins. Do you think there's anything, actually anything Sunweb could have done today to put themselves in a better position on GC, really? I mean, they're they're really up against it. They've got Ineos, 
with much more talent in terms of the support role with Rowan Dennis doing it, um, a fa- like just a magnificent job for uh, Gay and Hart. Like obviously, if Dennis is on Sunweb, Kelderman wins this Euro pretty easily. Uh, that's pretty obvious. So it's Dennis is really the one that's changed this Euro and turned it on its he- turned it on its head. But do you think there's anything Sunweb could have done, Benji, to put themselves in a in a better position today or on Stelvio? Today, less than on Stelvio. I think today they were between a rock and a hard place. And the only thing that I would say that they could have done different would perhaps be launch earlier with Hindley. But in hindsight, that looks like it wouldn't have worked. But if you look at the Stelvio stage, we had a lot of comments throughout the stage, not really in hindsight even, that were some questionable decisions by the DS, but the Diaz is probably in a bad, well, in a bad environment in the sense that he has to decide a lot of stuff in the middle of that stage. But in my opinion, you can prepare for the Stelvio stage perfectly. You can think about what's going to happen in the stage. And one of the very probable things that would happen in that stage as a Diaz is that Kelderman drops. And as a Diaz, you should be prepared in that. And I feel like it looked like they weren't as prepared as I would have try to be if I was in a DS position. But then again, I'm probably portraying a DS position as easier than it probably is. But towards the end of that stage, we spoke about that intermediate sprint. In the end, that probably won't be very decisive. But I do believe that that intermediate sprint at Stelvio showed that the Sunweb DS was not on everything, was not controlling every single part of that race. And on the final ascension, we said it, Hindley should have tried to attack earlier on on the last climb because Kalimon was still a proper margin behind. And at that point, it doesn't even need to be a big attack, just a small trigger to see if Hart can respond. And if he can't, just sit up again in his wheel. The max you gain, you lose out of that is maybe five seconds less for Kalimon, but at least you know that Hindley is not able to drop him on that climb then. and. I think that is where they missed something. And is that also what you have in mind? There's two places. There's first when Gagenhart got dropped by Dennis off the wheel is a moment, and that was very early in Dennis' pull in the second last climb. And because if I had been in the Sunweb bus that day, I would have said the second Kelderman dropped. If Kelderman drops on the second climb, then Jai, you, you, you ride your own race. You're GC leader. You attack. You do whatever you need to do to win this Giro including attacking Gainhart. Um, so when Gainhart got dropped off the wheel there, maybe he was getting close to his threshold heart rate. That could have been an opportunity to attack from far. Then the second opportunity is on the descent. I definitely think Hindley's a better descender than both of Gainhart and Dennis. It's quite technical. Rubio, I think, was gaining time on those, that group on the descenting, and certainly the Kelderman group did too. And the third would have been continuing his sprint after the intermediate sprint because it looked to me like Gagenhart sat back down and was un, in, under a little bit of pressure. Now, ultimately, Dennis probably would have been brought Hindley back, but th- those would be the three things, just nitpicking. The real issue was not attacking on the Stelvio a couple of stages ago with six Ks to go when it was no Dennis. It was just him head-to-head with Gagenhart um, and not even trying was the real issue. And we say it's a real issue. He's in the Mali Rosa tomorrow. Like, massive effort from Jai Hindley, 24 years old. Obviously, we could never have expected him to even be being in this position on GC, the young Australian, for Team Sunweb at this point. But 
that doesn't like that's all some sort of emotional nostalgia stuff we can talk about after the race. When you when you're in the race, you got to forget all that and say, hey, we're here today, trying to go for the Mali Rosa. We don't. It doesn't matter that we're 24 years old or it's our first Grand Tour or whatever. Um, doesn't matter what your name is or whether you're competing against Gainhart or Chris Froome or whatever. You just got to do the best with what you've got. And um, it looks like tomorrow in the ITT. Gainhart is odds on, or more than odds on. He's like a dollar thirty-two uh, beat Hindley in that TT. But you never know. We saw on the the uh, Tour de France. We never know what can happen in the final time trial. But it's it's looking looking pretty dicey for Hindley in that in that TT. Which just to oh, and, and Kelderman a minute thirty-two back. He's not making that back. It's fifteen point seven k's pancake flat. I can't see him making 90 seconds back. And uh, Ineos are probably going to win this stage too with Ghana. So that's my 22nd my 22nd preview of the time trial tomorrow is Gainhart beats Hindley. If I was a head-to-head market between Kelderman and Gainhart, I'd go with Gainhart too and Ghana to win the stage. Um, oh, I wouldn't be betting on Ghana to win the stage because the odds would be so short, but he's going to win the stage. <laughs> he's going to win the stage. And Almeida, look out for that lad to do a big performance too in the TT. Um, he's got a lot of heart, Almeida. If I was starting a team, he'd be one of the first names I'd ever put down on the team team sheet. Um, but yeah, do, you, do you look at the TT that same way, Benji, or you expect a surprise? Well, the last time we had a time trial at the end of a Grand Tour, <laughs> we, we had a bit of an upset. So I'm never sure in 2020, but on paper, I believe that Tau Gegenhard has in the bag, but... Still got to keep ourselves with our feet on the ground. Everything can still happen. Crashes can happen. Bad days can happen. And perhaps one of the candidates takes the wrong helmet to the ITT. But yeah, those are all details that they can think of before tomorrow's stage. And I believe that we will mostly see, first of all, Gegenhardt pass Hindley. That's my first prediction for tomorrow. And... If I look at the rest of GC, then, like I said, I would look towards Almeida passing Bilbao. It's a gap of... It's still a solid gap, though. It's... Oof, math. That's that's so difficult. 23 seconds, right? Oh, no. I reckon, I reckon Almeida, Almeida will beat him. Yeah, Almeida will move up to fourth. Yeah. Outside of that, Fulsang and Nibali probably won't budge. Conrad won't budge. Mosnada won't budge. Bernsteiner, 10th. I think the rest of top 10 is going to stay the same, to be honest. I don't really see major differences in performances there. And yeah, the only people that are close together to try something like that is Conrad and Nibali. But I believe Nibali is still a better time trialist than Conrad. And the previous time trials have shown that. So yeah, I believe the only changes we'll see in GC is Almeida over Bilbao and Gegenhard over Hindley. And that's it. What a Giro d'Italia from Ineos winning like seven stages, their second... Second string GC man. I'm not even sure he was supposed to be on GC given how he rode the first few stages. Joe Gagenhart um, looking in prime position to win this Giro d'Italia. And, but we'll probably talk about this more in the, the wrap-up podcast after the Giro. I don't want to labour the point too much just before we go into the Vuelta Stage 5. But I think the real issue, and you've got Dutch fans mad, you've got me a little bit mad as well. Um, not mad, I'm not angry, but... Um, questioning the tactics of Sunweb and you've got people in the middle questioning it. I think the real issue is they never they never took a risk either way. They never said, 
Kelderman is dropping, Hindley attack early and because you're not going to gain the time on the TT tomorrow. So you have to attack early and take a big risk there if you want to win on Stelvio and today. Conversely, they didn't take a risk by trusting Kelderman to not lose 10 minutes and drop Hindley back to help him on both Stelvio and today. Now, I still don't think that is the best would have been the best option on either day, um, regardless of what's happened. But they didn't take the risk either way, and they sort of just had Hindley marking the Ineos guys a lot. And I know it, it looks like he's just marking, not doing anything, but in reality, Dennis is setting a really, really high pace. But um, there were still a few opportunities here and there, particularly on Stelvio. But we'll watch the TT with bated breath tomorrow, particularly over here in Australia. But stage five in the Vuelta Espana, 184Ks and pretty flat for the first, well, first 110Ks. Oh, not flat. There's rolly hills, no categorized, enough for a breakaway to get away. Then three categorized climbs, 13.3Ks at 5%, then uh, 6.3Ks at 4.5% straight after, then a longer descent of about ooh, 22Ks. Then intermediate sprint, then the Alto de Petralba, 9Ks at 5%. Then descent, and then a punch to the line of about 600, 500 metres. And it was pretty steep, actually. Um, But yeah, we didn't think a breaker was going to win. I didn't think a break was going to win. I thought Yumbo were going to control because I thought they wanted Rolich to take some more bonus seconds. But a break did go off the road, Benji, when I tuned in. I can't remember who I know who was in the break when I tuned in, but maybe you were keeping a closer eye on it whilst the Giro shenanigans were happening. I had about half an eye on the Vuelta, and early on there was a very fast pace. The first hour was done over fifty-two kilometers per hour, and that's because they were trying to chase each breakaway that got away. Because there were groups of ten, fifteen people getting away, and the first group was not with too many special people, but two teams were unhappy about not being in it including the likes of a Burgos, a Pro Conti team, and they obviously want someone in the breakaway on stage like this, but eventually still failed to do so. So, well, was it worth it? Probably not, but yeah, I guess they couldn't. After that, the next group that got away, Sepp Kuss was in it, and Bajoli. They got a minute and a half, two minutes, and eventually they were taken back. I don't know by which team, though, so... I can't tell you which team was hunting Ineos. that breakaway back. Was it Ineos? Oh, most probably. Yeah. Ineos. And, because Kuz um, is a GC threat. It's really good, yeah, it's really good tactics right. from Yumbo. And at that point, I was already hyped. I was like, yeah, Kuz is leader of Jumbo, of course. <laughs> a bit <laughs> too too quickly to pull the trigger, of course. That break got caught and it was all over. <laughs> so um, a few minutes later, we had another attack. I think people from that breakaway got away. And we had three people that were off. Damon Ardensman, young lad from the Sunweb team. Bit of a climber, has a bit of a punch as well, but didn't use it at the right time today. But we'll go into that at in a second, I guess. Together with Tim Wellens in that breakaway. And also Guillaume Martin, who was also in that earlier larger group and got away with them. So three men were in that breakaway and were fighting for KOM. And, well, the person who got most KOM points is the one that also was in breakaways already in stage one and two, Tim Wellens, and he took enough to be in the KOM leaders jersey tomorrow. So he has 19 points, one point more than Carapaz, and three points more than Dan Martin. This seems to be a real goal of Wellens because he's been in the break so much, but on the other side, with all this climbing, 
it's going to be really tough to try and stay ahead of GC favorites for that K1 classification, I'm guessing. But all in all, still proud of the lad. And one more that the stage went on, we saw that it looked like the stage was going to be won by the breakaway. So those three riders were hunting for it in the end. If you didn't really look at the profile or something before, you just said it. And um, the last kilometer is indeed that that little bit of an uphill section, and it has a 10% max at a certain point, but the average is about 6.8 or something. I don't remember what the average is, but it was around 6.8. And on that final kilometer, those two riders had to go and sprint for it. And I'll try to you for that. Yeah, so Aaron's been clearly, they're working together so well, and none of these guys have a great punch, except I thought Guillaume Martin had a sneaky little... Sneaky sprint and Wellens typically, yeah, not a I didn't think of as a great finisher compared to Guillaume Martin, a straight up sprint. But in the end of the day, it was Aaronsman who decided that he wasn't going to beat those two guys in the sprint. You could see him gearing up for it. He went to the back of the group, got in the drops, started to lay off a bit, gain some speed, and attacked really, really strongly to the right hand side of the road, got separation from Wellens and Co. This was before the series of right-left corners before the final climb. Maybe it was like from 750, 800 to go. And he got a decent cap. Wellens snapped onto, onto him and was closing him down. Took a fair while to do it, though. Must have been quite tired. And Guillaume Martin kind of lost the wheel of Wellens. So he was doing it on his own too, not getting a perfect draft. So it was... Aronsman's move that was kind of tiring out both of them, but also himself. And I think at the end of the day, he would have been better off backing himself in the in the finale and maybe just sitting on both of those guys because if if you got someone like, oh, I don't know, Alaphilippe there, well, it's insanity to go to the sprint with him because you're just not winning. If, you, if you're Aronsman and you're against Alaphilippe, if you're at the front, if he's at the back, if you're at the back, he's at the front, you, you're losing. Uh, unless he posts up too early, so because he's just his punch is just too good. Whereas uh, Tim Wellens, uh, Guillaume Martin in the middle of the Grand Tour, I don't know, maybe maybe back yourself. Um, he's he's won like come third in Paris Roubaix Espoirs, I think, in twenty eighteen, and he, so he's not like completely without kick, and he distanced Wellens when he did attack. So yeah, maybe Aronsman next time would would wait for it, sit in the wheels, and then try and. Um, see how he can do but he's a fan of lantern rouge youtube channel i'm not sure if he listens to the podcast if he does timon we'll do a rest day interview if you want and then we'll get that stage w across the line uh, but then it was wellens basically taking over it was clear that arnsman was tired they've come into the final climb it's about 400 to go and guillaume Martin was on arnsman's wheel trying to get a draft and he's like oh shit he's going backwards because he blew up, he has to snap around to Wellens' wheel, and then Wellens kicks with like 200 to go, 150 to go, and there was just no way Guillaume Martin was coming around. You could see with the body language that he was even struggling to hold the wheel, and he, he couldn't hold the wheel. And Tim Wellens put time into him at the line. So a magic win from Tim Wellens, I think his first Welter Espana stage win, beating Guillaume Martin by four seconds, Aronson by 12 on the line. Um in stage five of this welter, two minutes about just over over two minutes ahead of. Well, I'm not. Is it, I'm not sure if it's accurate to describe them as a chasing peloton, 
Um, but it showed that this climb is quite difficult. It's not a – maybe it, it never was going to be a Rubashenko climb or an Aramburu-style climb. Um, maybe it, it always was really the GC boys, and that's why I like Dan Martin for today's stage if it had been a not, not a breakaway stage. But w- what happened in the in the chasing peloton, Benji? Because I, I kind of switched off at that point because I was like, the gaps aren't going to be that big. For the final kilometer, the peloton did have some interest as we saw that Movistar was trying to push it for a bit of a launch of their team in the last two kilometers. And on that last ramp, really push it and try and go for a little sprint. But Roglic was sitting in their wheel. And, well, this climb has one corner that goes 90 degrees to the right. And that is relatively close to the finish. And this is exactly the moment that Roglic wanted to start his kick. Roglic goes on the right of the two Movistar riders leading this out. you got to keep in mind that, for example, Groschartner is still five wheels back, six wheels back, Mars as well. We've got the majority of GC favorites not in the wheel of Roglic as he goes around the Movistar and takes the inner corner. And in doing so, he and the Movistar rider that was second in place were, well, the Movistar rider was slightly inattentive and didn't take his corner well, I don't know. It's hard to blame who caused the crash, but I think Roglic causes the crash. And Roglic goes into the corner, and he basically takes his corner so wide, breaking, that he leaves like 5 to 10 meters, like 50% of the road is left on the right of him when he comes out of the corner, and therefore he takes with his back wheel the Movistar Rider out. I'd put the 60-40% on Roglic. And perhaps, yeah, I feel like it's 60-40 for Roglic. I can't say much more than that. Perhaps the Movistar rider should have been more attentive, but this is a pretty wide corner. And it looked like he was breaking the corner. He was trying to get past people in the corner, and that's what comes from it. So it's a bit of a bummer for the people that crashed because of it, because Dan Martin was about five, five wheels back from the crash and actually had an Astana rider right up his back, like literally... Didn't break, just right into Dan Martin, and Dan Martin crashes because of that. So it's a crash with a lot of causes and consequences. In the end, slightly to blame to Roglic, but everybody can make mistakes, and I don't think it's something that someone should be get crucified from. I think some Dan Martin fans on Twitter were angry already, but I wouldn't really put the blame on Roglic, despite it being somewhat more his fault than somebody else. Nonetheless... This has a consequence in the end, but let me talk about the final section. Roglic punches away. Well, does it have a consequence? Uh, yes, it has consequences. Uh, Roglic punches away, and Grosschartner punches away just behind Roglic. And Roglic takes three seconds in that group, and Grosschartner takes two seconds on the elite group with Karapaz and such on the line. So Roglic gets a bit of a bonus, and this does not have consequences on Roglic. Let me be clear of that. But the organization did put Roglic in the same time as the elite group because this stage is considered as a mass sprint finish. And as it is considered on a mass sprint finish, first of all, the three kilometer rule counts. So Martin doesn't need to be worried about his GC. And additionally, the three second rule counts in sprints that three seconds means that you're put in the same time. So Roglic does not get an advantage of his sprint today. And that's all I have for you. So, yeah, that, that's what I meant. It's crazy that Roglic got given no time gap despite having, like, I don't know, <laughs> two-second gap. Like, it's just it's gotten to ridiculous levels now, I think, where they're not being given time gaps 
on the road. It's just it's just insane. Like, what's the point even sprinting for the line? Um, and it's also a shame, I guess, that Roglic, I reckon Roglic would have won this stage easy and Jumbo just didn't pace really that hard. They were just kind of chilling. Dumoulin, I'm not sure I'm not what sure. the motivation What do you mean? Sorry? I'm not sure Roglic would have won the stage because I feel like the crash just took out every single opportunity from anyone from behind to get past people. And the only two people that got out of that crash with an advantage were Groschartner, who passed on the left, and Roglic that passed, well, on the right and slightly caused the crash doing so. So I don't think that Roglic would have had an all-out victory here if it really came down to it, because all the others were basically somewhat blocked by that crash happening. Okay, but he would have had a good chance. We, we thought he yeah, would have been a stage favourite, yeah. at least. Um yeah, probably right. The crash affected, it. but I don't know what Dumoulin is doing at the <laughs> at the welter at the moment. It seems like it's just un- unnecessary suffering. Um, I don't really understand it. It might be, yeah, he was maybe he was caught up in the crash, but he's not pacing or doing any work. Like he's way out of GC. He's what is he twenty minute one minutes behind? So is he going to help Roglic because they didn't really expend any resources to pace today? Which I mean, every second counts in it. Grand Tour, they sent Coos into a break at least. But, yeah, just interesting to see Jumbo Vismar obviously happy to take the day off despite the finale suiting Roglic. And I think I think Dumoulin should, should abandon. I'm not sure it's doing him any good being here, just battling it out this late. And we're nearly in, in November. Um, just, just call it. And I'm not sure he's going to be getting fitter through whatever's happening at the moment. But... The current GC now, still Roglic, five seconds ahead of Dan Martin, 13 seconds ahead of Carapaz, and 32 seconds ahead of Enric Mas, 38 ahead of Hugh Carthy. Um, but tomorrow's stage, stage six to Aramon Formigal, it's another mountaintop finish. I mean, Sam Bennett must be like, thank you for the one sprint stage, but no thanks for the other stages. It's 146 Ks, mercifully short. 6.2 Ks at 5.1%, another Alto de Petralba climb. That's in the, the first main climb of the day with 70 Ks in. Second climb is the Puerto de Cotafablo, 13.1 Ks at 4%. So obviously there'll be no GC action on either of them. And then it's a 14.6 K, 4.6% climb. But I think it's a it's a staircase climb. So the actual climbing is steeper than that. And the finale is... Um, yeah, so Roglic is my pick to win the stage. Just got to keep it simple. Um, I'm not. Maybe they're taking today off because they think Jumbo Visma have got a better chance tomorrow. But yeah, Roglic to win the stage. And if not, if it's a breakaway, I don't know. Let, let, I'll, I'll just have a look at the start list quickly, Benji, while you give me your picks for tomorrow. Whew. Hmm. I think that it is... I don't think it's going to be a breakaway. I feel like the mountain stage are going to be for... The likes of GC riders and the reason I'm doing so is that I think that Roglic was clear at the end of the first stage that he wanted to challenge for many stages and this was honestly meant to be that wonderful stage but the organizers can't do anything about it we have to live with it and let's be honest we can make the best out of it so I don't want for Miguel it's not the craziest of climbs but I think that this could be the climb where Jumbo just paces and Roglic sprints at the end of the climb because this is 6%. So I think Roglic is my favorite for this one. Unlike when I said that Kaz or something would be my favorite 
earlier on or Vlasov or who, whoever I picked for this Tourmalet stage when it was still the Tourmalet. I think that... Jumbo oh, this is supposed to be the Tourmalet stage. Yes, this was. Oh, and it's no I didn't know if I forgot. <laughs> We're all sad now. <laughs> and Paris-Roubaix was supposed to be tomorrow. And it's raining in Roubaix right now. <laughs> and Giro has two GC leaders on the same time going into the time trial. Man, that would have been the most insane day of cycling. It would have been, it would have been a four-hour podcast. Um, if I had to pick a guy from the breakaway, Badilati, the Israel startup nation, he's 30 minutes back on GC. I think he could win a stage like this, actually. Um, that's, that's someone who I would really like to see getting in the break tomorrow. Probably won't happen, but... Yeah, because it's such a short stage, it's going to be hard for a break to establish itself given that the first half of the stage isn't that hard either. So tomorrow we are expecting, well, we're going to be having our eyes glued to the Giro d'Italia last stage, the ITT, seeing who wins the Giro GC, looking like Gainhart, and then in the Vuelta we both think typical Roglic Mount top finish sprint, bunch sprint. So not expecting any major GC gaps there at all or any, any crazy excitement. Uh, unfortunately, but still, maybe the mountaintop sprints are your cup of tea. That's all from us today. Bit of a shorter pod. See you all tomorrow. Thanks to Lacole for supporting the podcast. Obviously, that's going to be continuing throughout the Vuelta, uh, where the Vuelta will get its own full coverage, where it's not overlapping with the Giro d'Italia. We'll see you tomorrow. Ciao.